Good morning, everyone. It's brilliant to see you all here. My name's Claire Doherty. I'm the new director of Arnolfini. And I know that many of you uh, may not have been part of Festival of the Future City uh, that has been going on in the city since Wednesday. This event, uh, these two sessions this morning, are part of Festival of the Future City. And it's been the most incredible um, meeting of minds from people from all over the world. I chaired a session yesterday afternoon that involved um, the most uh, extraordinary minds from Lagos, from Tokyo, and from Mexico City, talking about the conditions on the ground in cities across the world. And this morning, what we're going to do is focus down on the UK um, and just to think a little bit about arts organisations' roles uh, and what's changing in regards to how they can be active agents of change for our cities going forward. The context for these discussions and the reason to bring all these brilliant minds together uh, this morning is that uh, I'm, I've been in post two months now at Arnolfini and um, I've watched over the last decade or so uh, arts organisations really changing the ways in which they work and how they play a role in their towns and their cities. A civic role, a, a role which is dedicated to a social purpose not simply to be showcases and arbiters of taste. And in taking the role here at Arnolfini, I'm really interested in rethinking its future and its role within the city. Uh, it's been on this site since 1973. Many of you, Sally included, I think, uh, will remember coming to performances in the 80s and the 90s. And that history matters. It matters a great deal because it enables us to think of this place as a gathering of extraordinary practice and artist practice. But if we were to uh, be nostalgic about that history going forward, we would be missing a great opportunity to think what is the future of Arnolfini and its role for this city, for the Southwest region, nationally and internationally. And so in, in terms of our rethinking of Arnolfini for the future, uh, we've been working in all sorts of ways to try and listen to how we should adapt how we work, how we use these spaces, how we work with artists, and how we think of uh, perhaps a different distributed model across the city, working in all sorts of places across Bristol, not just the city centre. And that involves the Imagine New Rules uh, campaign, which you might have seen on the second floor, where we're asking uh, members of the public to join in thinking what might the new rules for a 21st century arts centre be, from playful to provocative, just to shake up that thinking a little bit. Uh, we've also had a podcast series where we're listening and talking to all sorts of people um, across the city and nationally um, about how they're working and what they want to see change. And these two sessions which are being recorded will also form part of that rethinking. 2018 will see a very different Arnolfini. We're taking a year to test out this space and the way in which we work in completely different ways, and we'll be announcing that in December. Um, but for now, this is a chance to hear some of the extraordinary ways in which arts organisations are working in their places so that we can reflect on our position here in Bristol. So our first session is with the brilliant Sally Talent, who is Chief Executive and Artistic Director at Liverpool Biennial, and David Jubb, who's Chief Executive and Artistic Director at Bassey Arts Centre. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a couple of provocations for about 10 minutes each, 
and then a discussion, and then I'm really keen to open up the discussion. So um, get those statements and questions ready. I don't want to see tumbleweed blowing through the audience. Um, and uh, because this is as much a, a group discussion about what we think is at stake. We'll then take a short break for about half an hour where you can grab a cup of tea or have a look around the Grace and Perry show, have a comfort break, and reconvene at 12 where we've got three brilliant other speakers until 1.30. Um, so to kick off, David, I wonder if we can start with you. For sure, yeah. Thanks for inviting uh, me. Could I have the first slide, please? Is that how this works? I yeah. should have asked. That's good. Do we do that? Um, so. Oh, brilliant. Sorry about that. That's a, that's a good start, isn't it? Sally will be. I'll do it for you. Is this the side you want? No. Okay, we're failing on the IT part. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because I'm an idiot, it's because I can't make it work. I'll start anyway. Um, so. The question we've been asked to explore this morning, and I guess it's the reason why I'm here, because I am really into this question. So it's what specific structural changes to arts and cultural organisations and ways of working are successful in helping to catalyse change? Um, and I, I'm, I'm passionate about that question, and it does mean that I'm going to be quite... Uh, geeky and techie, well actually not very techie, because I'm <laughs> Obviously not. but quite, you know, quite geeky in, about talking about the machinations of arts organisations, um, and of course there's I think a massive risk that therefore the next ten minutes are going to be incredibly introspective, something which arts organisations are justifiably criticised for all the time, every day. Um, my only defence this morning in approaching this in a very geeky way and being reflective in answering this question is that everything I want to share with you this morning, um, everything uh, I want to talk about, is about how we make change inside our organisations in order to be outward facing, uh, in order to partner, uh, and in order to enable people to pursue their dreams, and not just for the cultural organisations to do what they want to do because uh, that's what the artistic director or the curator says so. Um, so if you're hoping for a big inspirational answer to this question or a big vision, you might want to nod off uh, for the next 10 minutes because uh, you're not going to get one. Um, uh, I think it's easy, actually, to make ideas uh, sound great. I think the hard bit, actually, is making them work and making them happen. Um, why I get sometimes frustrated with the utterly inspirational, incredible TED Talks that you watch online... Uh, which sort of blow your mind when you see them. And there are 93,000 of them online. You know, that's 93,000 inspiring ideas by inspiring people. It sort of makes you wonder why we have any problem there <laughs> uh, whatsoever. Um, and I think the challenge is actually in making things happen uh, and not deciding necessarily what the change needs to be with a big inspirational idea. In my experience, it's actually usually about uh, other people having ideas and supporting them to lead change and to actually make it happen. So the subtitle for my contribution this morning uh, is borrowed from the words of Banana Rama, who I hear are reforming. Um, uh, it's not what That's you do, uh, but it's the way that you do it. <laughs> Okay, so I'm now going to talk very fast for five minutes just to give you an introduction to Battersea Arts Centre to root uh, my answers to this question uh, in an actual context. Um, so we're based in south-west London. We're a ten-minute train journey from Waterloo Station in the centre of the city. Our purpose... Thank you. That's our purpose, to inspire people to take creative risks to shape the future. 
the idea is that it's uh, circular, it's a process, and it's iterative in its approach. Our current staff team is about 55. We have a turnover of about 4 million a year. We have 690,000 pounds a year, which we're very grateful to have from the Arts Council, and the rest of it is earned or raised. We got established in 1974. We're based in Battersea's former town hall, and Battersea has a really exciting radical history, which we really like to tap into. Battis's motto since 1850 has been non mihi non tibi sed nobis, which is not for me, not for you, but for us. And we love to tap into that, into those roots. Our building's made up of 80 rooms. We've got about four or five social spaces, 16 flexible spaces for kind of performance, discussion and events. Um, a play space for under fives, an open air courtyard theatre, a gathering space. Uh, three professional kitchens, eight bedrooms and accommodation for people who live and work in the building on residences, workshops for making stuff, uh, flexible workspace for 60 people, and next year we'll reopen our big event space for about 1,000 people, a creative hub for up to 150 members, an outside space which has fruit trees and uses planters as allotments which will be free to local people who don't have access to green grow space. But more important than all of that, we have pavements, bicycles and buses which enable us to get out of that building and off that site into and around uh, our community. Um, our, at the centre of everything we do is our, what we call Scratch, which is not a unique uh, process, it's simply a, what I would, it's a creative process and all kinds of artists and all kinds of organisations all around the world have this kind of iterative process. The basis of Scratch is that somebody has an idea, um, somebody has some kind of idea, uh, it might be a fragment of a thought, it might be the very beginning of something. Somebody then often helps that person plan and test that idea and think about how actually, rather than just that idea existing in a, in a TED talk, but actually how it actually becomes a practically deliverable thing. Then the test of that idea happens, the feedback is gathered from people who have experienced that idea, there's analysis and understanding of that feedback and trying to decipher what that feedback means. And then usually there's time to go away and do something else and forget about that idea before you come back to it and start again. And that process is something that we used to use only just to make theatre. But over the last 10 years, we've realised that actually it has a real value in everything we do, the way we develop our building, the way we develop our organisation and our whole approach. And actually, it's a process that can take... You can use it over a kind of two-year process to make a big project happen, but you can also use it in an afternoon if you're just trying to make a spreadsheet look uh, and communicate more effectively, as you can use this sort, of, uh, this sort of approach in that context too. We have about 25 projects running at any one time in the organisation. I'm just going to give you a quick half a dozen examples just to give you a flavour of what it is we do. We have a project called The Agency, which is a partnership with Contact in Manchester, working with young people on housing estates around Clapham Junction to set up businesses that drive change in the local community. A big shift for us, this project, because most arts and cultural organisations, including ourselves, our conventional offer to participate is to come and do what we do. So we are a theatre, come and act. We are an orchestra, come and play. We are an art gallery, come and paint. Whereas the agency spins that around. It uses a creative process, but it invites young people to follow their desires and we end up doing what they want to do and we make projects with them to, to pursue their dream and their, and their idea, whatever that is. So I'm very good at all sorts of different uh, uh, products uh, and businesses now, including making uh, facial scrub from your uh, materials that you can find in your kitchen. So if anyone wants any advice on that afterwards, come find me afterwards. Uh, second project, performance. These are all projects that happen outside our building mainly or, or start outside our building. Performance Live is a partnership with BBC and Arts Council. It's 15 performances on BBC Two on a Saturday night during 17 and 18. Uh, we're trying, not always succeeding, to use Scratch within a BBC framework um, and to change the way that arts on television is made uh, to enable artists to produce their own TV programmes for the first time. 
Another project, our Moving Museum project, is a partnership with the local council using our local social history collection to change perceptions. It moves around the borough, into hospices, into schools, uh, into community centres, but also, as well as moving around the borough, it hopefully moves people. It seeks to stir the blood in terms of stories from the past to inspire our future. Another project, we have a collaborative partnership with eight areas and towns and cities around England in Wigan, Darlington, Hull, Peterborough, Medway, Thanet, Torbay and Gloucester. And the idea there is to change the relationship between the capital city, London and towns and cities around the country, supporting often peripatetic producers who are working in um, uh, kind of grassroots ways, setting up new cultural partnerships. And often a big part of our role is to support organisational development, but often also crucially and most simply to make introductions between those exceptional producers and funders who are often based in London. Uh, projects that happen inside the building, just a few of these. Uh, a project called Agents of Creative Change, which is a partnership with local charities uh, working in the third sector who've got an idea to make change happen. And we partner them with artists and encourage them to tap into their own creativity to make that change happen in their sector. We have a project called Up Next, which is a partnership with Artistic Directors of the Future, which is changing the composition of artistic leadership. That's the thing it's trying to change by handing over leadership of our organisations for a period of time to a generation of exceptional uh, new leaders from BAMR, BAMER backgrounds. Uh, our Scratch Hub is a new project for us, which is a partnership with up to 150 startup and creative freelancers. Uh, which is seeking particularly in the local area to change the level of capacity and aspiration in local charities and work across sectors. And currently we're working on another project called the Relaxed Venue Project, a partnership with Tourette's Hero, uh, which is to try and change the behaviours of, kind of, of an arts organisation, of a building when you, when you find yourself, uh, when, you, when you enter it, which is that uh, some of you will know about relaxed performances, the idea of coming into performance that isn't up... It's basically the opposite of an uptight performance, which is what most performances are, because they have rules and regulations about what you can and can't do. So the idea of a relaxed performance, and therefore the idea of a relaxed venue, is to extend that idea out to the whole venue. What does a relaxed... What might a relaxed venue look like in a few years' time? I hope that very quick snapshot just gives you a flavour of the range of the kind of stuff we do and gives you some context for ways in which I'm now going to answer that question. Two caveats to my answers to that question before I give them. I'm not suggesting that BAC is an ideal example. Most of our ideas are stolen from other arts organisations. And particularly, actually, a lot of our ideas are stolen from Brazil, which in, in itself, I think, is one answer to that question, which is to look for inspiration internationally. Um, the second is that I'm talking specifically here about the role of a cultural organisation that has a responsibility for providing a public space. And I think there are different concerns and interests for organisations that are peripatetic versus those that have a responsibility in a, in a building. They're not totally different, but I do think there are nuances of differences. So here's my gloriously dull slide uh, where I'm now going to techily walk you through uh, these five areas that I think are very important. So the first um, is that... Uh, it's sort of, some of this stuff is kind of really no shit Sherlock, but I just think it, when you actually look around at the art sector, you kind of think, maybe it's not. Um, so the first is to have an inclusive cause. Um, it's exceptionally interesting, I think, when you look at the causes and mission statements of arts organisations and how many of those are based on some kind of manufacturing model. So the, pro the pro provision or production of, pub of, of, of goods and services for the public. And uh, if you think about... Um, that wasn't in response to me. I think that was in response to something on his phone. Um, um, if you think about, uh, actually, the Arts Council's mission, so obviously Arts Council England, lead, lead government funder in, in England, uh, its mission is great art and culture for everyone. And I think that's interesting because I think it kind of sets up a, 
uh, a sort of subtle but, uh, as, but nevertheless present hierarchy, which is that art is created and it's for everyone. Um, and that passes on, I think, into the missions of national organisations. So if you look at the mission of the National Theatre, we make world-class theatre that is entertaining, challenging and inspiring, and we make it for everyone. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but I just think that they create unhelpful uh, hierarchies. I think, these are, I think people's organisations' purposes could be less about consumption and more about how actually as cultural organisations we facilitate and enable people to create as opposed to we create and uh, you enjoy. Um, so, our, and we've gone on that journey too. Our mission used to be Invent the Future of Theatre, uh, which was very much focused on the development of the art form and I found myself often in conversations with local people saying our mission is to invent the future of theatre and you could see that for 50% of people their kind of eyes glazed over. Uh, good luck with that mate, that sounds really interesting. Uh, <laughs> And as we shift to our new focus around people taking creative risks, the thing I found as somebody who w works with people uh, in our local community is that actually suddenly that becomes not an embarrassing thing to say anymore. It becomes actually something which everybody taps into, whether you talk to teachers or GPs or people who are running local businesses or parents. People get and dig the idea of tapping into their own creativity and people get the idea of risk and it starts to be a much more universal conversation. So inclusive cause, I think, is a key thing. Second thing is about having fluid uh, hierarchies. Again, it feels like a kind of obvious thing to say, but I think when they get fixed, they become a tyranny. The tyranny of the artistic director or curator who defines a programme of activity in their own image. The tyranny of a funder or commissioner who defines outputs before people have actually engaged in those outputs. It's exceptional when you think about the number of funders who want innovation, and yet they want the innovation to be written down on a piece of paper in advance of the funding application being submitted, which is, I think, an extraordinary thing, because if you think innovation always will come from people, it won't come from an... In you very, very, very rarely inspiration comes from an individual. Inspiration usually comes through collaboration and connectivity and kind of a bit of mess. So the idea that um, uh, that, that exists sort of puzzle, puzzle, really puzzles me. Um, so I'm not saying hierarchies aren't usefully important, and I'm not saying there isn't a hierarchy in, in Batsey Arts Centre, lots of hierarchies, but I think it's about the fluidity of those hierarchies and about the fact that those can change and shift. I think if there's a lack of vulnerability in arts organisations or any inability to listen in arts organisations, then it's very high risk. I think there has to be that vulnerability, that soft um, uh, edges and it's interesting I suppose from my perspective this is super techy and geeky but if you think about a theatre uh, and I'm sure this exists too within the visual arts sector or other, other parts of the arts sector is that I often think that the places that I am inspired by most are often in that world what I would call as receiving houses places that receive work and uh, that's not necessarily because the work that they receive is better or more, more inspiring than the work of producing houses who have the money to put on their own work. It's just that I think the very act of receiving means that the culture and behaviour of that arts organisation is about listening. It's about looking out and listening and finding ideas and bringing it to that organisation. Whereas often producing organisations that have all the money and all the resource that they need, I know they wouldn't say that, but they do have a lot more money than uh, those other organisations, tends to mean that they can make their own decision as to what they put on. And I just think culturally that means that organisation is sometimes less able, just because it's not used to doing it as much, to then listening uh, to... I'm um, get probably uh, getting all, all sorts of trouble with all sorts of producing houses here. But I do think that that is a thing. I really do. And I'm not saying don't have enough money. I'm just saying that sometimes...
sometimes not having enough money means that actually you have to engage and partner and connect in interesting ways. The third thing I just wanted to say is taking an interdisciplinary approach. And this is, again, a fairly straightforward, obvious thing, but I'm really not a fan of big... Uh, silos. I think silos are, are helpful. And perhaps the oldest and often most traumatic silo inside cultural organisations is the split between those who make art and those who work in the education team. And this, uh, this split drives me insane. We actually uh, have, uh, stopped it happening at Battery Arts Centre about 10 years ago. But I just think it's really interesting what it says about arts organisations because it sort of says that there are people, artists, whom we invest in and then there are other people whom we will help learn and who we will help to participate. And, and, and to either party, I think that is an, in, is an insult. Um, and I think this goes back to hierarchy, um, and I think it's about uh, a division that I think also then tends to place the artist on a kind of pedestal, which I think is not great for the, for the artist. And I think it often creates a, a hierarchy in the organisation. You hear the language in organisations about, you know, the main programme. Well, that's part of our main programme, our main cultural programme. And then the education and participatory programme is seen as peripheral, as secondary. My God, if every organisation in this country was run by its arts and education team, the whole, all these issues, we wouldn't be having this conversation this morning. You know, the people often within those teams have completely inspiring ideas, but are often at the edge or the periphery of the, of the organisation, and they should be put absolutely in the centre alongside art and artists. There is no division. Why do we create these divisions? Interestingly, so much of the time, I think, as cultural organisations of over 15 people, our challenge is to behave like cultural organisations of under 15 people. What I mean by 15 people is like the number of people who work, work for the organisation. So often these stupid siloed structured systems come through desperate attempts to try and organize bigger organizations and what happens is that sort of seizes them up locks them up things calcify people get stuck conversations stop happening resentments begin and you end up with organizations that are pretty static and not able to move quickly or respond quickly so small organizations don't do that they, they work constantly fluidly. Their cons hierarchies are constantly moving. They're, they're always using interdisciplinary approaches. I think when you're talking about bigger cultural organisations, it's about how we can behave more like them. For me, another answer to that is looking at the role of the producer. I'm doing two more and then I'm shutting up. Um, uh, the fourth one is about open buildings. It's about how our buildings can be genuinely porous, how they can be genuinely open, how they can be public spaces where anybody can feel like they can walk in. Of course, there will still be hundreds of thousands of people who do not feel like you walk in, and that's what your pavements and your bicycles and your buses are for, to connect with people. But trying to find ways of creating open buildings, and it, and it goes back to all the other things I've said. Why do we fix spaces for certain functions, which means that other people can't use those spaces. Why is that? Why do we do that? I know kind of there are good, sensible reasons for doing it, but why do we do it? You know, why actually can't everybody own our buildings? And why don't people feel like, just like you feel like when you go into a park, uh, or you go into, uh, I mean, it's different for different people, isn't it? But well, you know that feeling where you feel like, this, I, I'm able to occupy this space. How many people can we genuinely say that when they feel, when they walk into arts and cultural organisations in this country? So how can we make our buildings more uh, open and porous and feel like that they are shared and that people own them? Um, and then the final thing I just wanted to talk about was a bit about sort of sharing methodologies, which is uh, what I mean by this is that 
I think in the arts and cultural sector, we are, you know, we've got great models of touring work, haven't we? We've got kind of language around commissioning, systems and structures around tour booking exhibitions or uh, performances, and there's a whole industry that is built up around how we do that. Um, and we're quite good at it, you know, and, it's, and it's, it's a kind of little manufacturing industry all on its own, isn't it? When it comes to the most sensational and inspiring creative projects that lead social change around our country, why are we less able to share and tour those methodologies? So if you look at the Lowry, there's a, pro a programme, a project called the Young Carers Project, which works with young carers across the city of Manchester, often young people between the ages of sort of 12, I think, and about 30, who are caring for an adult, often for uh, up to 35 hours or more a week. And the Young Carers Programme, uh, through creativity, inspires those carers to think about their role as carers, to think about their lives, to think about what they might want to do in relation to their life outside being a carer. And it's a totally inspiring programme that works in partnership with Manchester City Council. And it's been running for about five or six years. It's award-winning. It smashes. If, if that was on a stage at the National Theatre, it would be getting five stars and being celebrated as a show that should tour around the world. That project only exists in Salford and the Lowry. And I'm not pointing a finger at the Lowry there. I'm pointing a finger at all of us because I would love that project to come to Batsy. We've got to work out ways that we can get better at sharing those kinds of methodology and process-based approaches. And I think it goes back to a lot of the things that I've said. That our, our mentality is so about manufacturing, it's so about product creation, that when it comes to kind of more process-based approaches, we sort of get stuck. So I'm really... Uh, excited about the idea that as cultural institutions across the country we can get together, share those process-based approaches and work out what are the current barriers to sharing those models with each other, learning from each other and being just as good at sharing that kind of stuff as we are at sharing work. That's what I want to say. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. best context of hearing No Shit Sherlock, I think it's a No Shit Sherlock presentation, it just gets to the very heart of, of kind of the dilemmas and the, asking the questions of why the, hell, why the hell is it like that and what could we potentially do. Incredibly inspiring opening. Thank you, David, so much. Sally, do you want me to have a go at finding well, your... I'm not an idiot, but I can't... I'll do it for you. We'll do it for you. <laughs> Can we just make, find mine? Sarah will come and have a go. Sorry, Sarah. No problem. For some reason, it won't close. Um, Do you want to close it? You just want to close it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I can imagine. Brilliant. Let me just look at the Okay. Great. Thank you, Sally Talent. Okay, great. Uh, it's great to hear you as always speak so passionately about what you're doing and I want to try and pick up on some of the things you've said and I'm going to attempt not to repeat them. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you, Claire, for inviting me here. I love Bristol. I used to live in Bristol uh, back in the day. I mean, and I feel that um, I really benefited from having uh, amazing experiences in this city. I saw great performances, great exhibitions, took went to amazing music events, obviously, um, because I studied, um, and I think this is relevant, at a very radical organisation, Dartington, in the 1980s, which 
makes me as old as I am, obviously. And um, I studied a course there called Art and Social Context, and I think many of the principles that you're touching upon were the reasons that I went there and were the reasons that I've spent my entire career committed to exploring questions around whose culture it is we present in our institutions, how we think about the role of institutions as they, as they define civic and public uh, life, and urgencies in our world and in our cities, and um, and also um, the kind of um, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary methods by which we need to develop vocabularies to better understand the world in which we live. So, I think that um, I came from Leeds down to the southwest when I was 19 very young person and I was completely educated and radicalized in this region so thank you for that and um, I think you know at the, uh, I, I, I think um, it was important to me and it's kind of important to say this because I grew up in Leeds and I think I went to London twice before I was 18 because there was just no reason to go I think we went on a school trip to Tate and then um, when I came down here, I was very, very lucky and I was taught by amazing people and I saw amazing work and it gave me the foundations by which I can now do my job and by which I've been able, the tools that I've needed and the vocabulary and knowledge that I've needed to be able to think together with artists about what's necessary in the world. And um, we need those centres of excellence wherever people live, whether that's in our cities, in our rural uh, parts of the country, but all around the country. So I, I know that Bristol's going through a change, but I think this is an incredibly powerful and creative city and absolutely critical, not only to the ecology of the Southwest, but to the ecology of the UK and internationally. So I just needed to say that. Um, so... Um, I'm not going to do a whole blah blah about Liverpool Biennial, but I do want to talk a little bit about what we're trying to do there, uh, or what I've been trying to do there since I've been there, and also how we work together in partnership as a city. And that means not only the cultural organisations in Liverpool, but all of our colleagues who work in all of the other kinds of organisations that define what a city might be and what a city needs to do, and very importantly, the local authority, whom I consider to be one of my most important partners. Um, it's really terrible infrastructure in this country, by the way. To get from Bristol to Liverpool is a proper challenge, but please do come to the biennial next year. Uh, it's only four and a half hours and two changes on the train. <laughs> and um, just to add insult to injury, Lime Street Station will be closed during the biennial, so you can get a replacement bus service from, uh, from Liverpool South Parkway, which, you know... You have a South Parkway here too, you know what it's like. So, um, anyway, um, we've been, the Liverpool Biennial is the UK Biennial of Contemporary Art. We're one of the largest visual arts events in the country, and um, uh, we bring together artists from all over the world to Liverpool to engage with communities there, to make work, to present work, to, but to allow us to become an international centre of contemporary art, which we are all the time, but we kind of do that more publicly during the biennial period. Um, we work um, year-round. All of our work is underpinned by and defined by conversations with the city, by education and by research. And our, our concerns are about, you know, what does it really mean to present contemporary art in a 
inner city at this point in the 21st century? What kind of cultural organisations do we need? What are the principles by which we guide the decisions that we make about who we bring into those conversations? And how can we learn from other cities in the world? I have an amazingly um, privileged role in some ways. I, I get to work with uh, directors of other biennials around the world. And I'm, we're part of an organisation called the International Biennial Association, uh, there are over 100 of us involved, and we get to talk about the challenges we're facing in our cities and what it means to present culture together in partnership with cultural organisations, where there are cultural organisations. Many biennials happen in places where there aren't any. So I have colleagues in Karachi, I'm going there later today, in Pakistan, and Indonesia, Lombombashi in the, the Congo, Dakar in Senegal, and these are examples of often where artists have come together and made it possible for uh, a civic uh, project to happen. And it takes the form of a biennial because that's the language, let's say, that an art world might understand. So I'm just going to... Uh, Liverpool Biennial, Liverpool Biennial 2018, we took the title Beautiful World, Where Are You? This is a response to this world in which we find ourselves. How do you find your feet? And we're looking to artists and to people for the answer to that question. So one of the things I want to talk about is how we work with the local authority. So often there's a need that the uh, local authority has. And in this case, I was working together with um, uh, Liverpool Vision, Liverpool City Council, um, the friends and stakeholders of Everton Park, which is a rather large park on the outskirts of the city that's really desperately in need of reinvention. And we put together a 10-year strategy with them on how we might reinvent the site. And actually, arts and culture is at the heart of that strategy because what people really value is the experience of being in that environment. And they wanted a uh, new skate park, let's say, Wheels Park, they call it, because there's, I don't know, I won't go into it, but there's politics between BMX riders and skaters, of which I know nothing. Um, um, and we, we said, well, that's interesting. Why don't we uh, invite an artist to do that together with us? So we invited Ku Jong Ah, who's actually already done this once before in France. And she worked together over a two and a half year period with young people, with youth services, with the city council. And they had a budget for a skateboard park, which we then used to commission a public artwork. And what we have in the end is a, is a, is a usable, skatable public artwork, um, which is permanent and which glows in the dark, which is super exciting. So it uses the technology of the stars that you put on your ceiling. It stores up light when we have sunlight in Liverpool, which is not every day, and, um, and it glows at night. And I think what's amazing about this is we were able to work with the desires of the city and we were able to involve an artist to do something that makes it a unique uh, cultural destination at the same time. And I think those moments are really exciting when they happen. So we, uh, we were established actually in 98. We all say 99 because it's debatable, but anyway. And we've commissioned work by over uh, 500 artists. In 2016, we had 1.2 million visitors to the biennial, and we can demonstrate that we bring an economic impact of 100, or we brought over the last decade an economic impact of 126 million. So our return on investment for every one pound that the council puts in is 13 pounds. So just to be clear about what that does in terms of um, helping to drive the local economy in lots of different ways, and of course we can talk about economic impacts, but for for our mayor, that's a very 
useful way for him to be able to argue for the investment when he, like every other local authority in this country, is facing drastic cuts from central government that make it very hard for them to retain a commitment to arts and culture. I'm very proud to say that in Liverpool, our, uh, our Mayor, Joe Anderson, and our wider city region, and I think Patrick's going to talk about that later, Steve Rotherham, have an understanding of what culture does for the region and how important it is in terms of driving change, driving the possibility of rethinking the city region and the city and thinking about what the future of post-industrial cities might look like in the face of late capitalism. Um, we have... Uh, 10% of our visitors are international, and of course, tourism is, a, is an important discussion to have. I mean, there's a bigger conversation, I think, for us all to understand about what does it mean to live in a country that is no longer an industrial country, that no longer manufactures? What do we do? What is the basis of our economy, and how do we reinvent our cities and regions? In my opinion, we need the most intelligent and creative of thinkers to do that. The things we've already tried don't work. So let's try something new. And in order to think new things, we need incredibly exceptional creative individuals. We need artists, we need poets, we need architects, we need brilliant engineers, all to work together to make it happen. So, you know, if, uh, if as I believe, creativity is a human right and is part of something that we all need uh, in our lives, and if cultural democracy is a principle by which we understand how to value everybody's cultural production, not a top-down democratisation of culture, but bottom-up and top-down, how do we create institutions that don't connect to society, but that are already a part of society, and are a civic place where ideas and culture happen, where artists make things happen, and where things, you know, the urgencies and anxieties of our time can be expressed, and we can together work out some solutions. We've uh, disinvested in our schools, and we've disinvested in the curriculum, which is disgraceful in my opinion. And I think that it's even more pressing that we have uh, cultural institutions that can provide an alternative for our young people who will be in charge of our adult social care. I mean, I'm completely self-interested here. Um, so um, for me, one of the things we've done in Liverpool is to be able to work with our local authority to do that. And um, not only by commissioning work, but also by developing something we've called the Liverpool Curriculum. So at least we know that everybody living in our region will have access to art and culture. Um, I'm not going to talk about that, I'll just show it. <laughs> well, I'll talk about that. Uh, we, we worked together with Peter Blake, Sir Peter Blake, to dazzle the um, Mersey Ferry. And that's been on the water now. It will be on the water for four years, dazzled like this. And I think I'm going to have real trouble taking it off the water. But um, Peter's got issues around it. When it parks, it scratches itself. Um, so, um, but nine million people have engaged with this project. And I think it's important to be able to think through. Sometimes we do projects that are very wide-reaching and that enable us then to do other kinds of projects. And a diversity of practice is very important. For me, the fact that we have Tate in Liverpool is amazing, and that, to me, is the Tate of the North. And that's important. We have eight other museums. We have galleries. Everyone has a different role, and that ecology is only healthy when everybody's doing what they do well. We mustn't 
all start trying to do each other's work. So we, we do come together, and actually we have an organisation called LARC, which is the Liverpool Arts and Regeneration Consortium. And the chief executives, and we're not allowed to delegate, uh, meet every two weeks, two hours, and talk about how we can work together also with the city. And that is an amazing... That has been sometimes a bit annoying to have to do it every two weeks, but a really incredible place in which we can understand how to better work together as a city. I think it's just useful because it's... And I think the reason we do it is because in 2008, Liverpool was the European city of culture, and we, the city had to get its act together. And, uh, in all, and that was 10 years ago. So I think we are reaping the rewards of a decade of trying to find ways to work together. This is a really weird way to do a talk. I don't normally do it like this. Um, so I, um, I also, after we, after we worked on the ferries, uh, we got approached by the buses, and I was like, well, that's amazing. Like, infrastructure, <laughs> like, do everything. Haven't done a train yet. But um, with this program, what we did was uh, Brick Bus, which is obviously that one, uh, is painted by, hand-painted by the guys who paint buses. Uh, which are actually painted and they're not vinyl wraps because paint is more durable. And we had to work together with the team. Uh, and it's, it, they worked together with an article called Anna Jota, who's in her 80s, based in Lisbon. The middle bus is called Space Bus, and that has been done together with uh, young people from um, one of the local primary schools who, who worked together with Hatto Design. And they also, uh, they've made a bus which um, has uh, messages to future citizens of Liverpool. And then the third one is by one of our associate artists, and I'm going to, uh, Fran Disley, and I'm going to just tell you about that in a moment. These are in service for three years, and again, they go out to the wider city region. They're all over the place. So in a very interesting way, they take art into situations and bring people back into, different, into the city centre in different ways uh, as part of a moving public artwork. Um, I wanted to talk a about a couple of minutes. That'd be quick. I wanted to talk about our associate artist scheme. So we we support ten artists living in the region, and we uh, talent development is very important to the way that we work. So um, those ten artists um, are each mentored by, by an international curator. We did this together with Independent Curators International, and for a three-year period, they uh, they've each received funding at twelve thousand pounds to travel and make work and be connected uh, to an international set of conversations, which to us seems important as an argument to say you can be an internationally successful artist without having to move to and live in London. And uh, this, is, this has been a very exciting program for us and something that we do with great pleasure. Uh, all right, so just quickly, I think I've covered most things. Um, mm -mm. Integrated programming, I just wanted to talk about that. I've never believed, I've always worked together with the idea of an integrated program. Organizations should be um, sites of learning and sites of producing ideas. And we are first and foremost uh, a kind of education organization. And um, we have strands of activity, but we do not have departments. And I think that's really important. So all of our projects require uh, us to learn about what's possible and learn together with people. And the ethos we've developed for Liverpool Biennial is this notion of a thinking city. So we treat the city as a school and as a brain and we connect to the knowledge in, that's inherent within the city. That knowledge is in our universities, in our citizens, in our young people and in the artists that come together to deliver the biennial. Is that enough?
that's yes, brilliant. enough. All right. Thank you. Um, only because uh, we want to dive in and, and, and pick your brains and, and, and share thoughts and questions. I think one of the things that um, I'd like to dive into is to think about um, what the challenges are and what, and what, and what doesn't work. It's, it's something David and I have talked about, actually, perhaps not being a, a, a reasonable question in terms of scratch, actually, because if, if it's an iterative process of trying things out and making change happen, um, that there are kind of small... Um, I don't know if you call them failures or, or small adjustments as you go along, but I think sometimes it's really helpful to think in, in terms of moving these institutions, whether they're a biennial institution within the art world or a theatre, and rethinking what forms those might take in the future. What are the things that have been really difficult about that? What are the things that have, you know, it's been like changing gears and, uh, you know, not pushing the clutch down properly? Um, are there moments where you've thought, ah, this is too hard, or these, these, it's taken longer than you thought to, to try and make that change happen? Me? Oh. <laughs> so, Lucy Lippard is some kind of brilliant writer, as we know, and uh, she says change is a process, not an event, and I think that's really important to hold on to. Um, we are an organisation defined through partnership. I have no venue. So I work together with Tate, Blue Coat, Fact, like many, many institutions and buildings. What is hard is that. It is very difficult to work in partnership and it takes an awful lot of time. We have meetings endlessly. Uh, we sit and we talk about what we want to do. I have to somehow find ways to both allow the time for us to listen and to go through those processes of learning together, but at the same time, make sure that we're going to deliver, because if we don't, uh, none of us have our money anymore, none of us have our function. So just knowing how to trust the process, and that actually all the things that I thought would be hard about my job, because I moved from working in a building-based organisation at the Serpentine Gallery, where I was for 10 years, and I did a lot of projects linking to social context, and now I'm in like the whole city. Um, all the things I thought would be hard about that are really hard, and everything I thought would be easy is also hard, so it's all just really hard. It's <laughs> <laughs> just really hard. And I think, you know, the thing is, I get up in the morning and I think, oh. But beyond it being hard, I'm going I'm to push you a bit on that. Beyond it being, it being hard, Thank and it, let's talk about like, it being hard relative to you know, yeah. other people's, oh, what that means. Um, I'm, I'm interested in... You know, what, what, give me an example of what you tried and then you go, God, that really didn't work. Well, I don't know, negotiating a local authority or trying to, you know, thinking that you were working in a collaborative way in a particular location in the city and then thinking, shit, that really didn't go wrong or that really didn't go right. Or, you know, are there moments where you've used a certain process and then you thought that doesn't work? I think... Um I think the skateboard park is a good example. Mm -hmm. So Everton Park is in a really difficult, politically difficult spot in North Liverpool. It's, it's an area of really high unemployment, um, very kind of, you know, the, the communities have been let down time and time again. So various housing policies, for example, 
they've been promised things by the local authority and then those things haven't been delivered. So it's not a community that will easily trust you to. I mean, I, I know this on, uh, I know Noel West are here today and they've done this amazingly properly embedded committed project. So we started to work together and we came in with the council, which meant that it took me two years for people to understand that I wasn't part of the council, nor was I the person that had not that had sold off a section of the park actually for housing development and that those houses were not going necessarily back to the community. And so for us to gain the trust of that community uh, took a very long time. And then I think, you know, it, it did work in the end. And also halfway through the project, um, youth services were entirely cut. So all the people we were working with lost their jobs. And so we, we were then in a position where we said, do we step in and continue the project? Because actually, does that backfire in terms of undermining those individuals who've got all the skills and expertise, or what do we do? And in the end, we ended up having to hire all the youth workers. I had to find more money to pay the youth workers to continue on the project because they were no longer employed by the, by the, by the council. So I think it's the politics that are hard, and I suppose it's knowing who to get into bed with yeah. and how, because actually, Everything has such a long tail. So in Liverpool, a lot of the people that are elected members have actually been involved in politics since they were kids. And they all know each other and they all know their stories. And actually, I think possibly when I first arrived, I, because I hadn't been working there for my whole life, I didn't get some of those underlying politics, which I now understand. And I now always have an interlocutor. So I always work with someone on the ground who I know knows everybody, who was probably born in the area, who can help me get through those situations. So maybe that's an answer. Yeah, David. Uh, departments. Um, I think that departments don't work uh, in arts organisations when, if you think about, um, uh, and we've we, so in terms of uh, d the direct question, yeah, we have had departments and we've changed that structure just because it feels like they, they do stop things working. If you think about departments, um, they, they exist uh, in the image of a, of a, of a manufacturing company. So if, you have, if you're making a car, uh, you, you know, having a design team followed by you know, lots of different teams that specialise, a paint shop, you know, having those different... Because you know what you're making, then actually splitting those functions out into different aspects of the process in order to produce the thing at the end that you knew you were going to make and that you iron out the issues as they go along makes sense. When you try and use that same process to divide up a cultural organisation, and it's not just the division of the cultural organisation into specialisms, because I'm not anti-specialism, I think specialisms are incredibly important, but when you decide the budgets of that organisation and you define the activity and the plans of that organisation through those departments, for me you are planning your organisation through a variety of functions of your organisation as opposed to what you are actually trying to do. And often because what you're trying to do is that you don't know that yet because you want to need, you need people to work out what you want to do, then the idea of having these sort of structured expert-led departments that sit on budgets I think creates um, often within organisations, uh, static kind of behaviours and things get stuck. 
So for us, that's one thing that we have shifted. We've moved to a project working model where we still have those specialisms. So you still have teams that have kind of specialisms and that can support each other within areas of specialism. But everything in the organisation, absolutely everything, fits within one of 25 odd projects. Um, and each of those projects has a shaper whose responsibility is twofold to think about the relationship between that project and the organisation's purpose and secondly to think about the finances of that project and how it contributes a, an agreed net contribution to the overall organisation's budget. And then every project has a project manager. Some projects have two members of staff and that's it. Some projects have 20, 25 members of staff because they're bigger projects. But crucially, and I suppose the uh, final thing I would say is that uh, in terms of what doesn't work, it's not that that project working system is perfect, and my God, believe me, it's not. Um, it's just the fact that it enables you to make change more often. So one of the things that doesn't work inside organisations to respond to your questions is when things stay the same. Organisations need to change every single day. And when uh, Claire and I were having a conversation yesterday about this question, yeah, with Scratch it is, it is complicated to know what went wrong because the point is is things are going wrong all the time every minute uh, and even in this com even as I'm saying things I'm saying that no, that's not right and you're constantly adjusting and trying to change things in order to improve something that is just something that we are all trying to do all the time but our departments and that system structured way of working tends to stop that very natural, fast human instinct to consistently improve and develop because you've got to go to the, the cross-departmental meeting in two weeks' time, which is going to last for two hours, and you've all got to sit and present your plans and papers. And it, it starts to seize things up and things start to slow down and get stuck. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's one thing that uh, really has released a lot of energy in our organisation. It is often in organisations that young people have the best ideas, that have the, you know, they, they have the best, often, perspective on what things feel like because they have gone through a system themselves, often of education, where they've received stuff and they are ready to uh, spring forth with ideas. Departmental working often means that those people's ideas very, very rarely get heard in an organisation because they are naturally the bottom of the hierarchy. And by the time it gets to that senior manager, it's very hard for that to then become a kind of fluid thing. So project working has also released a lot of energy because a lot of those good ideas across project teams tend to bubble to the surface a bit more quickly. So it's also about pace. It's about the speed of doing things. And for me, Scratch has uh, been valuable for us because it's both a quick way of working, but it also allows you to develop ideas slowly. So it's, it's quick minute by minute, but it's slow in terms of the development or the delivery of an idea. So far, in, internal structures are more agile, more responsive, more, more experimental. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in thinking about the frame of, of this discussion, which is about affecting change uh, more broadly, more external to the organisation through artistic practice, through the projects that we do. I'm interested in, in decision-making then. So when you're, when you're thinking about that social purpose of a of an organisation, that's kind of the root of both your organisations, in a sense, to affect change. How are, I guess what's very, what's very different to the organisations that we've had in the past is that, in a way, those Victorian institutions have identified social need, you know, so there's a very patriarchal kind of way of identifying either there's a community that we need to work with, there's an area of deprivation here, or it's a sort of deficit model, isn't it? So could you give me some examples, maybe, um, thinking about how do, those, how do those ideas and those needs and those, the change that you want to work on as an organisation through the arts emerge? 
Well, it goes back to Bananarama because... Um, As it always uh, should. Because, uh, <laughs> because the, the thing is, is we don't know the answer to any of those questions. Yeah. I think our role as an organisation is to, is to provide process, to provide facilities, provide resources for other people to enact that. So, mm. so the, the key thing is to shift away from that model, that deficit model that says there's yeah. an issue here or there's a, yeah. and we need to parachute in and sort that out. It's more about actually us as an organisation having... Uh, resources which is people, resources which is money, resources which is space and for us a process which is why Scratch for Us is so important which is just about then saying to people what, what do you want to tackle and how could we, could we support you, could we work together to help you tackle that because mm-hmm. we've got some, we don't know how you're going to tackle that but we have got a process that might be useful to help you unlock your, um, your creativity. I think our, uh, probably, our schools if you think about it are again are based on a deficit model. They're based on a you know, about this sort of the idea that young people, again, like Ken Robinson's ideas around manufacturing, that the most thing, that the most thing in common that young people have is their da- age, their data manufacturers. So that's why you put them in these sort of year groups, and then you fill them up with knowledge gradually. Whereas I think a model for schools, which was, and I know great schools do do this, but the overall system uh, struggles with the idea, which is about empowering young people to. Uh, become agents in their own lives, to become the protagonist in their own lives, as opposed to feel like they have a deficit, they need to understand all this knowledge, and then somehow they will magically be able to uh, to do something. So I think our job as cultural organisations is to is to provide some process, but essentially to support other people to develop uh, them, themselves and their communities and their ideas. Mm. Um, one of the benefits of working in a smaller city than in London because in London it's so big Mm. and there's so many constraints is that um, we're at the table so I am often in uh, scrutiny committees for the local authority so I'm involved in quite a lot I'm involved in planning Mm. I quite enjoy the housing discussions and I I found it very interesting not to just necessarily work with the director of culture Claire McCorgan who I see all the time and we, we, we are actually working in a very joined up way together to think about strategically about what the needs of the city and the wider city region are moving forward but I've also found it super exciting, like I, I met um, the guy who's in uh, who's, the, who's head of adult social care and refuse collection, I don't know why he's got the, the joint remit but he's got budgets and he wants to be creative and it's really interesting to try and find solutions to some of the challenges that are faced by those departments who have actually way bigger budgets than um, than the culture team have and actually what's what's been really interesting is instead of as you say going out with a sense that we we know what to do it's more like what do you need and what are the what are the what are the concerns that you have in terms as a city and as a wider city region that we can help to think through and maybe together we can find some solutions. So I think what's been really amazing is I know all my MPs, I know all of our elected members and I sit on quite a lot of very long committees in the town hall but I think being part of the civic life of the city, not just the CEO of an arts organisation because I believe it is our role to be part of that conversation means that we then we then have the opportunity to to do amazing things sometimes Mm. together 
It's that being in it rather than engaging well, with... I am a citizen yeah. in uh, yeah. Liverpool. It's where I live. It's where I spend my time. Mm. And it's, um, you know, I do what I can to make that a better place for me to, to live and therefore everyone else. You know, in the sense of, like, the, that we, we have a civic and social responsibility mm. to the people who do live there. And I think, you know, Bristol's probably a similar scale. Mm -hmm. So it's possible. I found that very difficult in London. So when I was in London, you could maybe work within a couple of local authorities, but there's, it's so complicated, you can't really work it out. I was amazed that I have in my phone phone numbers of anyone I need to ring up to get a road closure or to mm -hmm. help me, you know, I mean, get, 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 get things done. And uh, so I yeah. think it's identifying what's necessary mm. and what's needed mm. in a given situation and what's needed here is not what's needed in Liverpool, it's not what's needed mm. in Battersea, mm. it's not what's needed in Karachi, mm. you know, it's not what's needed in St. Helens, but we, but we can ask the same questions. And I do think someone like Ivan Illich, when he writes about de-schooling society and the idea of learning from one another and exchanging skills, that's if we come at it in that way, we can learn together what we need to do. Well, just one final question before I throw open. I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by and interested in... Um, it feels to me that there's a... At least over the last decade, there's a, a real sea change now in in how we work and the arts organisations that are emerging as, as, as the leaders. And we'll be hearing from Andrew about the Gulbenkian's inquiry into the civic role of arts organisations. And you only have to look at those case studies to see what's emerging. But still, we have a funding system and we have, certainly in the visual arts at least, in the art world, we have a, a hierarchical way in which the establishment is still formulated. And I think you only have to talk to a number of, our, of, the, of the thousands of visitors who've come to see Grace and Perry who would be walking through these doors and expecting to see an exhibition. Now, I'm very interested in thinking how could these spaces be used in lots and lots of different ways as we go forward. But I'm interested to hear from you both about how do you negotiate changing the experience of whether it's a theatre or, or a biennial or an exhibition um, putting artists at the very heart of that, but at the same time knowing that you're doing so within a sector that has fairly conventional ideas around, uh, for example, uh, you know, what is, what is um, of quality or of excellence mm -hmm. or what is great art. How do we, how do we as, as arts organisations begin to shift the expectations around that? As I, I certainly don't find that, that visitors and audiences and participants have a problem with that necessarily. It's more to do with the institutions and the establishment that are, find it more difficult to think through the potential future types of arts organisation uh, that might emerge. I think... Um, I think we have a new kind of leadership. I'm very excited by the younger generation of curators and future leaders that I meet because they don't have any of the problems we had around the departmentalization. This job is done. Great. Brilliant. But the constraints from funders, I think, is really challenging. So any of us who, who did our MPO applications just now and who is, we just all submitted our business plans, uh, I hope, on time uh, last week. And um, it is interesting because I think the, the, the way in which 
for example, our work with children and young people is defined with, and certainly it's different in theatre, I think, but in the visual arts, we, we're pushed into a model which actually delivers the arts award, which isn't a model that reflects the way that I've been developing a practice my whole life, nor any of what I think Holly Brannan, our brilliant education curator, does, doesn't meet the model. So we can't, we can't actually count half the work we do. However, I think that what we need to do is work together with Arts Council and, and with other funders, all of whom have the same desires and concerns as we have, to think about how we put measures in place that allow us to do the work that, is, that we want to do, that our, that our constituents and our audiences want us to do, and at the same time find ways to resource that work. So I just think that's our job. And it's like, I, I have to find ways to raise the money, and I will do whatever I need to do to do that in order to do the work. And I rely on the artists that we work with to do a bloody good job when we've, got, when we've, we've managed to get the resources in. So I think, um, I think it's going to get worse. And I think we have to accept the fact that, you know, Arts Council is doing a brilliant job of trying to retain investment in the arts. I, as I said earlier, I travel a lot and I go to countries where there is absolutely no public support for the work that's done and we should be grateful that we have it. So we need to do everything we can to measure the work in a way that government can find a way to release the funds into our, into our organisations and then we just need to do a good job. So I don't know. I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think sometimes we have to just understand what's needed and do it. Mm. But then we need about, to. I but then we need to do the good work. Yeah. I mean, David, uh, what do you think? Yeah. Um, you, uh, yeah. You talked about sort of. I think. Um, I think in cultural organisations sometimes we we are a bit traumatised by the idea of things. Uh, who who qualifies something as good or as excellent? Is that my job? I'm the, I'm the artistic director. I'm actually not an artist or a director. Um, I, I, I'm, I don't know what I am. I'm a producer. I make, I make stuff happen. Um, you still do make that. Do critics judge what's excellent? Uh, do the public judge what's excellent, uh, what's good? I think it's a really traumatic question because it's so deeply subjective. And I think, for me, the way that we answer this all the time, really, and I probably sound like a crack record, but is by using a process like Scratch. It means that when you're testing your idea, people give you feedback and respond to your idea, and so you, it makes you often really pissed off because you didn't think that people would think that about your idea, or they take you in a slightly different direction, but then you have to rethink your idea and you go back to it. And because that process happens again and again and again, it is in its own way, I think, a way of collectively, through collaboration, through creative collaboration, it's a way of making your idea better and stronger and richer and more relevant and more interesting to more people. Um, and so in a way, the kind of idea of who has to define something as excellent or as good, kind of, it, it sort of comes away because actually the truth is, is that group of people who are working on that project, some of whom have absolutely own and, but you know, that idea is theirs and some of whom are just kind of, sort of semi-detached to the idea and offering feedback and support sometimes. It's kind of they define something when it's ready or when it's good or when it's excellent because you go through that process and in a way then it, it slightly takes away from the need for then some qualified person to tell you whether it's good or not because actually that group of people in that context in which that idea is happening have worked through that idea to the point where it has become exceptional for that group of people. Thank you.
I'm going to open now to, to questions and thoughts. Yes, here, with the scarf. But just wait for the mic. Sorry, Tamsin's just coming to the mic. Just here. Pass it along, yeah. There we go. That's great. Thank you. <coughs> just so we can, everybody can hear you. And do say who, who you are, if that's all right. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Jess. I'm from Bristol. Um, I quit my retail job in January, and I'm trying to get into the art sector. Um, I just wanted to ask about the kind of looser um, kind of project-based model rather than department-based model because for me I'm looking at sort of entry-level jobs into the art sector and wouldn't that get rid of a lot of them um, and also just uh, how you would hire into that structure if it's always if your role is always changing depending on what project you're in what would you be looking for? Um. It hasn't reduced. Um, I don't know the I don't know the statistics, but my instinct tells me that it certainly hasn't reduced the number of entry-level opportunities into our organisation. In fact, it's increased them. Our staff team's grown from about 25 to about 55 now. So we, I think there are more people coming through. Um, often we actually start. Uh, we have shifted. I mean, your question about kind of job, the idea of a job and what it, what the job is is something that we are trying to play with is that uh, job descriptions are a, often can be a bit like kind of departmental things. You know, you get, you know, I don't know if people in this room have a job description, how many pages your job description is, how many details and levels of things it tells you you have to do every day. <laughs> and sometimes those things are just deafening and they kind of, and of course you have to do a lot of that, that shit, but you don't need to be told always that you need to do all of that shit. So we've start, started to shift to a model where we try to create job descriptions on one page, which kind of have the, the sense and the spirit of what the job is trying to achieve. But then actually across the project matrix, each year we will have a meeting with everybody in the whole organisation to look at what their job will be in the coming year. So again, it just creates that opportunity for change and development. So actually, for entry-level people coming through the organisation, it's often, and I've, this has really shifted in a very positive way in the last five years, is you see people kind of moving around the organisation and beginning to pick up skills, you know, from the marketing sort of function to programming to fundraising to organising and administrating. And, they, and actually, I think they've become much more kind of stronger and resilient uh, um, uh, um, professionals because they're able to do that because if you think about it in in terms of uh, our our jobs being so structured there are very few obvious career pathways for people to kind of follow whereas I think if more organizations had a more fluid system then hopefully internally that organization becomes a developer of people I'm not saying that lots of brilliant arts organizations that have departments don't do that brilliantly too I'm just saying from my perspective I found it a, a way to create a kind of slightly more f fluid system so because I want to say something on this, because I am uh, run a, an organization that fluctuates in terms of how many people I need at any given time. I go from having 14 people to having 140 people. So, and it, and it really, really changes in different kinds of employment. But uh, we piloted a scheme two years ago called the City as a School, and we employ 24 people on living wage um, over a period of, um, I think it's about 24 weeks. Um, and they are paid to attend a training program. So the first uh, month of the time that they're with us, they're learning about um, 
the, the, the biennial, the artists, what it is, it's just kind of the opposite of paying to go to art school. Then they work with all of the artists that we're working with. And then together they run the, uh, all of our venues and they, they develop and program the public program. And um, we have, it's, and it's a, I, the people that do it are really brilliant and they tend to be people who are looking for a way in and we also train people how to fundraise. Um, we get meetings for them with Arts Council. We do lots of things to, help, to give them the skills they might need to either continue to work in the arts sector or to set up their own organisations. And we have quite a few small galleries that have been set up by our mediators following the biennial. But we have 100% employment uh, coming out of that programme. Many of those young people come back into uh, the organisation in other roles because we've got to know them through the work that we did with them and uh, it's only open to people living in Liverpool so I uh, even though I get people desperately wanting to do it from uh, who've graduated from the Royal College or who want to move and come and live in the city it's, I only want we only want to do this for a local talent development program for people who are both uh, from the city but also want to stay in the city once the project's finished because this is a kind of legacy program for us but it's been really effective, and I'm really proud of, uh, of that work that we've done and the amazing people that we've trained. Yes. Down here. Do you mind passing the mic down? Yeah, that was one of the fun. Just one down here, sorry. Oh, we've got one down here. Great. Thank you, Maddie. Uh, hi, um, my name is Joanna. Um, I'm from Respace Projects, uh, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for this inspirational presentation. Every single time I'm coming out from those debates, I feel uplifted and hopeful for the future. So thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, <clears throat> I'm really sorry. I'm gonna. Um, I might take a little bit longer, but I just want to put my question in context. Uh, We've set up, uh, me and a few of my friends, set up Respace projects in 2015, two and a half years ago. And we are a not-for-profit organization behind Hive in Dalston in London, uh, which is, I don't know if you might have heard, uh, which is a cultural uh, center as well. <clears throat> so uh, we are not funded. Um, we've been running for 100 32 weeks, and just to give you a brief, brief explanation. <laughs> How many days? Um, <laughs> we've, got, uh, we've been given a building by a local developer rent-free uh, in order to facilitate the space for the community. And we worked with volunteers. Uh, the building's been run by volunteers. None of us been paid. And um, over two, almost two and a half years, we've created 51 exhibitions with over 200 artists. Uh, quite a lot of them were group exhibitions from very um, good universities like St. Martin's, um, uh, Chelsea School of Art, just to name the few. Um, we've created over 419 events, that's 3.17 events a week, just to... Uh, over 200 workshops and, and so on, so on, so on. The numbers go on, go yeah. on, go on. Uh, my question is, uh, in a times of austerity, and I will, you know, the times are changing, and uh, despite um, councils and boroughs uh, putting the culture in their plans, in their unitary development plans, on the maps, uh, um, just to let people know they are thinking about art, mm -hmm. even though that is at the bottom of the agenda at the moment, and quite a lot of arts institutions are losing their funding. My first question is, um, how art can um, survive? 
how organizations, beautiful organizations that you are uh, leading, uh, support themselves in the future. And the second question, um, I would like to refer to your presentation about opening the buildings, because at the moment we are closing the project, what we do comes on the meanwhile um, contracts, we don't want to take over the buildings, okay. we just yeah. want to facilitate them when they are not being used, okay. because we think it's a waste. Yeah. There's uh, uh, over uh, 20,000 buildings in, in London uh, uh, that are uh, standing empty. If you're adding up uh, commercial buildings, the number is even greater. Uh, if you look um, at UK, there's um, apparently, I haven't checked that yet, but there's quite a lot of um, support. Yeah. There's more empty buildings so than there's homeless people. So my um, question is to yeah. you, how can you convince developers that have those empty buildings to give them back to the communities when all they think is about monetary economic gain. Okay. Um, yeah, I would welcome Great. you. Thank you. Yeah. There's a whole conference in that. So, um, yeah, I know. I've, so, I've been to quite so a lot of lectures. We're a little tight for time. I, th I think that there's, there's two points there I might ask if either of you want to pick up on. So one is financial viability in, uh, in, in the face of cuts and, and diminished budgets and how do we make ourselves more resilient and the other is specifically thinking of gentrification, thinking of our cities, thinking of the empty buildings and how we might facilitate their use in clever, smarter ways um, that's more grassroots up rather than developer down. So any, either of those two you want to pick up on? David? Yeah, um, so just to some, I guess something I think links those two uh, very good thoughts, it sounds like you're doing incre incredible, mm. amazing work, is that um, one of the challenges within the current planning system, uh, and this is another version of uh, specialization and departmentalization, is that a breed of some of them are very good, but a breed of some of them are not, uh, of cultural consultants have developed who are very, very good at being able to help uh, uh, speak the language of developers, and developers usually they're marketing departments that are interested in thinking about culture as a form of communication in terms of making a site or a prospective uh, cult, um, commercial or residential uh, set of spaces attractive. And so they're very good at speaking the language of developers. They're also very good at speaking the language of councils and planning departments and knowing what planning departments need. And they've specialised brilliantly in this territory and they're wonderful at producing very glossy, beautiful booklets of about 80 pages or 100 pages, which is a cultural strategy for a developer. And what you end up with is three park benches, a couple of statues and a lot of wind blowing through buildings. This is particularly a London-based thing, but I think it's also, uh, it also exists around the country. And I think arts and cultural organisations, and particularly organisations like yours that have this amazing experience, need to find ways to get in to connect to councils and hold them to account and join their planning departments up with local cultural infrastructure. Because at the moment, local, local cultural infrastructure is ignored often in that planning conversation. And I think, I mean, I think this, is a, this should be legislated on as well. And I think there's an opportunity for national government to think about how not just consultation and all that gubbins that happens, because everybody knows what happens with consultation. You consult, you, you think you hear the answers that you wanted to hear, and then you go and do what you, you were going to do anyway. And actually, if you look at the cultural strategies of a lot of development in London, it's appalling. And actually, uh, that's a scandal, because in terms of the way those deals have been put together, sometimes... Um, now, there is also a lot of really good examples of work which is really exciting, and that is about people, and it isn't just about park benches and sculptures, because as we know, capital... Um, 
cultural capital and social capital, that's what... Uh, it's, it's, not about, it's often not about things. It's about the way... Like your, those amazing colourful buses and those colourful boats. It's, you know, people are getting on and off those buses and on and off those boats. So it becomes something that we are part of rather than just something that uh, we walk past. So, so I'm going on too long, sorry, but I just think it's, I think it's a really key area. I also think it links to your question around sustainability because actually there is money there in them hills uh, or in them big buildings and therefore actually if we can both get stuck into planning departments and relationships with developers, but equally uh, make those plans better, there is also their income uh, to be earned from those kinds of models. So I think it's a, r a really important territory and all power, all power to your elbow for what you're doing. Um, Thank you. It's my, I work with empty buildings and meanwhile use and developers and I have to find ways to resolve those challenges on a daily basis. It's difficult and I think it's very nice that you think that the local authorities are going to be that honourable. I think section 106, which is planning constraint, which should enable culture, is often the one that's cut when it comes to second stage planning. Um, however, I think you should talk to the Mayor's office in London, uh, Justine, and uh, there is there are uh, there's huge plans for studios, and if you're prepared to move to the outer London boroughs, you will be far more successful than you will if you remain... Uh, uh, in the centre, but I think um, I think it's a very sticky area. And then sustainability, you know, I think you need to work with them. But you have a fantastic culture team at the mayor's office in London, and you just need to work with them. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one up here, and then I'll come down here. Probably got about five minutes before our break. Is anybody a bit cold? It's yeah. chilly. It's cold, isn't it? Let's have an aerobic session. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to have an aerobic session, as Sally's suggesting, and, and also turning the heat up. So sorry it's a bit cold. We'll, we'll warm it up. Yes, gentleman here in the beautiful jumper. That's nice. Well, um, <clears throat> I'm a, I, my name's David Saunders. I work out of a cafe in a building in Stokes Croft that is in, seem, seem to be in danger of shifting from being an arts centre into a development. I'm wondering if you can talk me through a quick scratch on this during coffee <laughs> after it, right. Uh, and and it, the, I'm halfway to uh, a point about funding arts from the community and not from government or public funds. And it's, I'm a frustrated green and I've come here for fresh air and seen this fantastic approach to project management, which could apply anywhere. And actually, our communities are about to be in a position to halve their energy bills with renewables, not Hinkley Point, and to build homes at prices that their homes cost to build, not the three times the price that you get through the property bubble. And, and I think there's a wonderful collaboration where you can turn community arts centres into community construction projects. The sort of training that you're talking about for people who want to do arts is exactly the same as we want for the people who want to do crafts, which is what you need for re-engineering our cities. So Thank you. Can we meet over the break? But I think this relates to the Hive project as well because there's, there's a developer behind that who doesn't know that artistic projects can deliver development value. Quite. I agree with that. 
Um, Belinda, do you have a question here? This guy here. Question here? Yeah, Stephen. Yeah. Um, my name's Stephen, and I, um, I sort of live between cultural organisations in Exeter and around the harbour side here. Um, this is a question for David. Uh, you mentioned trauma a, f a few moments ago, a couple of times. Um, obviously, nobody wanted Battersea Arts Centre to burn down a couple of years ago. But I'm, I'm guessing, I'm thinking that, um, that that must have given you, that trauma must have forced you uh, or given you an opportunity to reimagine your, your cultural organisation in a different way. And I wonder if there's any, any particular lesson that you might be able to share with us and other cultural organisations where we don't necessarily need to set fire to our building, or, or whether, and I don't mean this flippantly, or whether you might suggest that we do actually burn down our own cultural institution. Uh, I didn't set fire to Batty. No, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I wasn't even in record. London at the time. So. Um, thanks, Stephen. Uh, yeah, so I think, um, I mean, yeah, somebody's, somebody said to me, about a couple of weeks after the fire. So th we have a building of two halves and the very back half of the building is where the fire was in 2015 on Friday the 13th of March. Um, and somebody said to me about two or three weeks after the fire, uh, told me a story about sequoia trees, which you, you're all, I mean, the gentleman from the People's Republic of Stokes Croft will certainly know this. Um, but the sequoia trees are the, those massive uh, sort of redwoods that exist in, uh, I think particularly in the west coast of America. And I think there was this uh, issue with them in the uh, middle of the last century where there was a huge amount of um, fear that the sequoias were dying out because they weren't germinating. Uh, so this was both in California, but it was also in Canada. Um, and some of these trees are like, you know, two, 3,000 years old. They're the most sort of extraordinary artifacts on, on our earth, um, some of them. And... It was discovered that what had happened, that we were so carefully managing our forests um, that actually forest fires weren't happening. And it was discovered that the sequoia tree actually germinates in extreme heat. So the sequoias have such an incredible thick bark that they are able to survive through huge fires. But through that extreme heat, sequoia trees actually germinate. Um, and it was through a fire that actually they recognised that, that hundreds of new sequoia trees were, were, these seedlings were coming through. So I'm not suggesting that we literally uh, uh, sort of um, apply that to the cultural sector, but I do think it is interesting. And I think it's very interesting what's happening here. I mean, Claire was talking to me about some of the ideas that you have all been coming up with for this building. And from my perspective, they sound so incredibly exciting and more exciting actually than is happening in many of the art spaces across our country. And this is coming out of actually a very difficult situation. And so sometimes I think difficult situations can provide a huge opportunity. And if you don't have a difficult situation, then maybe don't necessarily create one. <laughs> but I think the sort of liveness and the drama of a challenge does bring people together. I mean, why is it that we require things, you know, crises to happen to bring the best out in people? So from my perspective, I guess, again, going back to Scraps, this is why often we use that process because it means that kind of things go wrong all the time and through those sort of mini crisis in every sort of meeting or conversation or moment it means that you can try and try and turn things around and try and work out what people want and try and make things better. 
And on that note, uh, I think it's time to get some coffee and some tea and some warmth and uh, stand up and shake our bones. Uh, we'll meet back here at midday. Um, so uh, enjoy the heat and the warmth, and we'll get the heat turned up. Thanks very much.